be just moving right through the Old Testament. And this evening's message is entitled, A Lapse of Faith. A Lapse of Faith. And I think we may have or will or all of us at some times do have a lapse of faith. Let's begin with verses 1 through 6 of chapter 16. And it reads, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, he built Geba and Mizpah. Now, Asa's lapse of faith happened in the 36th year of his reign. He's about 60 years old. It happened when Israel's king Baasha came up or invaded Judah. King Baasha's plan was to, was to strengthen Ramah, which was about five miles north of Jerusalem. And his goal was probably, number one, to stop all travel between the two kingdoms, that is, between Israel and Judah. He says, well, no one can go in and no one could go out. Uh, to stop, uh, again, access to Jerusalem so that the southern kingdom, Judah, might be forced to surrender. Secondly, to stop the partnership between Judah and any power north of Israel. And third, to get a foothold inside the territory of Judah for future operations. Now, Asa's lapse of faith was caused by three things. And we need to write them down, mark them down, or some way keep mind of this. First of all, Asa did not seek God's help against Basha. Remember in our study last week, he sought God against Zerah and the Ethiopians in chapter 14, verse 11. Maybe Asa, or earlier I should say in our study, um, he sought God for uh, help against Ace, um, Zerah and the Ethiopians. Maybe Asa thought Baasha would be an easier enemy to handle than the Ethiopian leader was. And Asa could take care of him by himself without God's help. And a lot of times we think, you know, so, well, we need God for the big stuff. And for the little things, you know, we can handle it. We don't need God. Or maybe it was Asa's victory over Zerah that may have been his downfall. And this may have, it may have been the start of his downward spiral to spiritual decay that he followed until he died. But whatever it was, it was an act of unbelief on Asa's part. And unbelief is sin. And in view of his earlier success, because of the Lord, what he does here in chapter 16 was an act of foolishness. So it was a mistake and a sin, which he learned later from the prophet Hanani, we'll see in verse 9. The second mistake, the second cause of Asa's lapse of faith, faith was becoming partners with an unbeliever who was Ben-Hadad of Syria. Syria was their enemy. It was a type of, they're a type of the world. They were unequally yoked. 
God says that a believer should not be yoked together with an unbeliever. They shouldn't be yoked together in any kind of relationship, like a business venture, a partnership, a long-term project, marriage. And you know, we see this so often in young people. You know, they fall in love and the person, you know, isn't a believer, but they're close in their eyes. They're almost, but we know the saying about almost. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's still not of the Lord. And, and, and we need to, to, again, pay close attention to God's word. The third cause for Asa's lapse of faith was he resorted to bribery to accomplish his goal. Now, people who use dishonest methods to get the advantage, they usually end up paying more than what they bargained for. And they find out in the long run that they have been sadly deceived. Even if Asa was to blame for trusting in Ben-Hadad's partnership, the way he went about it was all bad. And the reason that he gave Baasha for the partnership should have never been used by Asa. And then Asa, even though he was right in trying to break up the partnership with Ben-Hadad and Baasha, shouldn't have, he shouldn't have resorted to bribery. Ecclesiastes 7.7 says that bribery debases the heart. That is, it corrupts the heart. It corrupts the heart of the one who gives the bribe just as same, the same as the one who receives the bride. Now, beware of shortcuts. And I've shared this with you before. There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. Satan tried to get Jesus to take a short, shortcut when he said, Jesus, you don't have to die on the cross. Just fall, fall down and worship me. I'll give you all of this. I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. But again, we have to beware of shortcuts. We have to beware of, of looking for the easy roads of life. Because many times they often become expensive and dangerous detours and dead ends that can be difficult and painful. And every time I think of a shortcut, I remember the time that Kathy and I went to Oregon. This is over 40 years ago before we had kids. Now, on our way back, we were driving back to California. We were on the 101. We wanted to take the scenic route. We wanted to take Highway 1, Pacific Coast Highway, and drive the coast all the way back home. So we stopped. We got out the map. We looked for a shortcut to Pacific Coast Highway. So as we're looking, we see what appeared to be a shortcut. This little, you know, squiggly brown line, you know, on the map that looks real short. Oh, that, that has to be the shortcut. And, and so, you know, uh, we looked for it. We saw this what appeared to be a shortcut. So we follow the map and here we go. We found the road that led to the coast. So we get off the main highway. We take the shortcut. And you know, it was at first it was beautiful. We were surrounded by beautiful forest. And, and for the first several miles, it just was a beautiful road. But after a while, it turned into a narrow, bumpy dirt road. There was barely enough room for one car. Now, we were in our VW Bug. Everybody had a Bug in the 60s and 70s, you know. Our speed went from about 65 to 70 to 10 to 15 miles an hour because the road was so bumpy. Well, we figured out well, it's not going to be long before we hit Pacific Coast Highway. Well, one hour went by, two hours went by, and it was late in the afternoon when we started. We hadn't seen anybody else on that road in two hours. Now, we had seen some old cars abandoned down the side of the cliff, and a few minutes later, we see this cloud of dust off in the distance. And, and as it gets closer, you know, we see it's this big old logging truck. And it's heading right for us. And 
I'm saying, oh, he's going to stop or he's going to slow down. And so he kept kind of, and he wasn't going to slow down. So we pulled over as far as we could. And I mean, he just whizzed right by us. And I thought, oh man, that was, that was scary. So, you know, we thought, what's going on here? So we keep on going and the sun is starting to set. You know, when the rays are picking through the trees and you see it, it looks really nice, but we, oh, we could see that the sun was starting to set. Now, when I started this so-called shortcut, I probably had a quarter of a tank of gas in the Volkswagen. A quarter of a tank takes you a long ways. But the needle starts moving closer to empty. So the three hours go by, four hours go by, it's getting darker. I'm starting to freak out. Kathy's starting to freak out because we're not saying a word. She sees Sasquatch running through the woods and he's going to meet us in the middle of the road and he's going to eat our faces off. So, you know, we're, we're, we're freaking out now. By the end of the fourth hour, we finally come to a paved highway again, a civilization. A few miles down the road, we find a gas station. And I talked to the gas station about the, the attendant about that road. He said, well, that's an old logging road. He says, it's, it's not very safe to go there, and you better be prepared, you know, when you go. You, know, you better have gas and, and you know, know what. But anyway, it was an old logging uh, truck road. And he says, yeah, you're fortunate that you, you got out of there. See, it was only a 30-mile road. Normally, it would take you, what, half an hour if you're doing 60 miles an hour. But it took us four hours. That shortcut turned out to be a difficult and dangerous road. It wasn't all that it appeared to be. And in the Christian life, it's the same with shortcuts. So even though bribery appears to be a quick way or a shortcut to get things done, and that's what Asa thought thought here, it only turns a wise man into a foolish man and it encourages the corruption that's already inborn in the human heart. It doesn't take a lot for, for us for, to be encouraged to, to do something foolish because it's already there. It's a lot better that we wait patiently and humbly for God to work out his will for us so we do it his way. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8 says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. In other words, finishing is better than starting. And this applies when we're living according to God's wisdom. The beginning of sin leads to a terrible end. But you see, if God is at the beginning of what we do, he'll see to it that we that that we will reach the end successfully. As Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we've all heard the expression, I'm sure money talks and boy, it can talk loud and it can confuse people who would normally think clearly, who would judge fairly and accurately. We hear about bribes often given to judges and policemen and politicians and so on. Bribes are given to hurt those who tell the truth and to help those who oppose it. The person that's involved in extortion or takes a bribe is a fool. And it doesn't matter how smart they were before they, they, they took the wrong road. And it said that everybody has their price. And we see that even in Judas, a close follower of Christ. He had a price. But those who can't be bought at any price... Those are really the wise ones. Now, Asa should have never robbed the temple. Remember, in the first six verses, he took the treasuries out and he offered them to, 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 to Ben-Hadad to, to break his fellowship with Baasha and, and to join him so that Baasha would leave him alone. He should have never done that. That was the wrong thing to do. Uh, he should have never robbed the temple for the ungodly purpose, which was bribery, even if it was okay to replace that stuff. 
First of all, it didn't belong to him. You see, even more so, it was wrong because it said it was the treasures of the house of the Lord and they shouldn't have been used in Asa's dishonest scheme. And we need to remember, all of God's money should have written on it, holiness to the Lord. And we need to remember, it is God's money. Yeah, I worked for it. Yeah, I earned it. But He's given me the ability to work and the strength to work and to earn that money. It is His money. Every single penny. And we need to be very careful how we spend God's money. Also, how we get money for the Lord. God does care. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. You see, you can't outgive God. Now, what did Asa's lapse of faith lead to? Well, it led to what he thought was success. You see, wicked plans in our planning stages, we do it because, well, it looks like it's going to be successful. It looks like we're going to prosper. But the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 1 and 2, he says that the wicked and those who do wrong soon fade away and wither like the grass and spring flowers. There are three things from the way Asa handled that resulted. Three things that resulted from the way Asa handled the situation. Well, first of all, Ben-Hadad, in verse 4, it shows us he accepted the bribe. And again, money does magical things. Money is like a magic key that unlocks the door of many hearts. Man, we need a lot of grace to resist the power of money. It's a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. Jesus said, you can't serve God in mammon. Because you'll, you'll, like, you'll love one more than the other. We read in Proverbs 19.4, Wealth makes many friends. It sure does. And then Proverbs 19.6 says, Every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. Wicked people are not the only ones who are guilty of taking bribes. Asa's gift was too much to resist for Ben-Hadad's goodness. Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria, deserted his friend Baasha, the king of Israel, for Asa, king of Judah. And in time, he would desert Ada, uh, Asa for the next highest bidder. And you have to remember, if someone cheats on someone else for you, they're probably going to cheat on you for someone else. And I have seen that so many times in marriage. You know, if they cheat on you, they'll cheat on, somebody, or they'll cheat on you for somebody else. Nor did Ben-Hadad simply not help Baasha under the impression it was an armed truce between the hostile powers. He, but he deceitfully sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. I mean, when they thought they were friends. Baasha and Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad sends his armies to, to invade Israel. And they attacked Ijon and Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali, according to verse 4. As bad as Baasha was, and as bad as his mission was, Ben-Hadad's character and behavior was just as wrong and offensive. Secondly, as a result of Ben-Hadad's attack, Baasha stopped his work. Verse 4 says he stopped building Ramah, or he stopped fortifying Ramah. Baasha and Ben-Hadad had a treaty with each other. But notice, it didn't take a lot for it to be broken. Just a little bribery. You see, when the arm of the flesh doesn't work out for the Christian, then they will lean more on the almighty arm of the Lord. 
And it's sad that many times when, when we fail in, in our own works, and our own efforts, that's when we go to the Lord instead of making Him the first priority. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Lean not on your own, own understanding. You know, we were made to lean on the Lord. You know, when, think, when, when, when things that wicked men trust in are removed, hey, they don't have any place else to go. They have nothing else to trust in. And third, Asa took everything from Ramah as a result of what took place earlier. And they used it, and they used its stones and timber for his own use. He built Geba and Mizpah with it, it says in verse 6. For example, he fortified them. So what Baasha had collected and used to hurt Asa, Asa now used it to defend Judah. You see, while Baasha intended to ruin Judah, he was ruined by Ben-Hadad, according to verse 6, and by Asa, according to verse, uh, verse 4 and verse 6. Now here's the lessons in the first six verses. The desires of men are the real cause of war. James says what? You have, you have not, so you fight and you war. Also, we learn about the wickedness of bribery. Proverbs 17, 23 says, The wicked take secret bribes. Thirdly, we learn the certainty of payback. Paul said, You sow what you reap. And fourth, we see the wickedness of deceit. He says, it's, The Proverbs says in Proverbs 25, 19, the wickedness of deceit is like trying to chew with a bad tooth. Hey, it becomes painful. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 now. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Notice, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubin not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Because the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Notice, therefore, from now on, notice, you shall have wars. You're not going to have peace anymore. Verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him. Notice because of this and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time because Asa was told the truth by God's prophet. He got angry with them. And then and then he takes it out on the people. We see the results now of Asa's lapse of faith in verses seven through nine. The prophet Hanani's message was different than the one sent earlier by Azariah. Azariah's message earlier was a word of counsel to Asa. But here, Hanani's message is a rebuke to Asa. And he didn't like it. And how many times do we like rebukes, even though they're deserving? God always matches his messages to the needs at the time. He matches his messages to the needs of the listeners. Paul said, every scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Those who serve God faithfully as his messengers, they will find it to be well worth it. And because Hanani carried out his mission so well, he's well known. Notice, even to this day, we're talking about him. And he will be well known to the end of time. What was Hanani's message? Well, it was a great opportunity, but it was a lost opportunity because Asa did not obey God's word. And here's why it was a lost opportunity. The Syrians were probably going to be wiped out. But instead, they got away. 
Because you see, instead of Asa relying on Jehovah God, verse 7 said he relied on Ben-Hadad to help him. And let's compare this with what with Elisha said to Joash of Israel in 2 Kings 13, 19. The man of God, that is Elisha, was angry with Jehoahash because he only struck the ground three times. Elisha told him, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was enti- he was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. Unfortunately, this happens a lot. When men, are, when men are blinded by their own personal interests and they don't take advantage of the opportunities that God gives them, that is, they call for the help of enemies rather than, for the, from, than the help of friends, or they call upon their worst enemy, Satan, rather than their best friend, Jehovah God, that is, whenever they find themselves in some critical situation, you see, their fear replaces their faith. Also, Asa was reminded of a great victory and the secret for the victory in Hanani's message. The mighty army of the Ethiopians and the Libyans was defeated by Judah's army and Asa knew it wasn't because of his ability or or, or his uh, uh, army's ability or his leadership. It was because he prayed and he called out for Jehovah to help him. God answered his prayer by showing up on the battlefield on his side. That's part of Hanani's message in verse 8. And you know, it's really, a, it, it's really terrible how easy and quickly at times we can forget how many times God has helped us. And how quickly we can forget without thinking. And then they give themselves the credit rather than God. There's no better example for a Christian to follow than David when he said in Psalm 103 two, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not. Notice, forget not all of his benefits. He's having a good memory will help to keep us from making some really dumb and costly mistakes. Third thing in Hanani's message, there was a great doctrine that was declared and the lesson for it. Asa should have known, as it said in verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord were always looking to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And that all he had to do, all Asa had to do, was keep his heart right before God and then show it by trusting God in verse 9. Fourth, the next part, another part of Hanani's message, he, in that message, he told Asa that a great sin was committed and it had disastrous faults. You see, by Asa turning his back on God, not going to God, but going to Ben-Hadad for help, Asa acted foolishly, verse 9 says. He not only knew it, I'm sorry, he not only blew it, I should say, but, and, and made a mistake in judgment, but basically he did a wicked thing. He did, he did a wicked thing. And as a consequence of his mistake and his sin, the prophet said, you're going to have wars. And he had non-stop hostility with the northern kingdom. He had no peace. And this story shows us that sin is like a two-edged sword. As an act of foolishness and a work of wickedness. And the double-edged side of payback is the natural result of human foolishness and the punishment of a serious sentence. Now, let's look at Asa's response to Hanani again in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 again. Then Asa was angry with the seer, that's Hanani, and put him in prison. Notice he jailed him, for he was enraged at him because of this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at the time. 
Asa got angry with Hanani. Now, really, he was angry with God because Hanani was God's representative. He was God's messenger. Good men and bad men as well get angry, but it's a sin for both. He was angry with Hanani, the prophet, the seer. In actuality, he was mad at God because God sent him with the message. You see, the Bible tells us that anger is a work of the flesh. In Galatians 5.19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. It gives a long list of the works of the flesh. One of them was outbursts of wrath. And we are commanded by Scripture, Ephesians 4.31, to let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Anger is the reaction of a foolish heart. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.9, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry because anger rests in the bosom of fools, in the heart of fools. Control your temper is what the Scripture tells us. And here's why. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Because whoever has no rule, that is, no self-control over his own spirit, is like a city broken down and without walls. You see, a city in biblical times that didn't have walls was, was vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. There would be roaming, roaming uh, uh, thieves and robbers. They'd go through the desert lands and they'd, they'd go to city after city. And the city that they would attack was the one that didn't have walls. Because they were easy targets. And Solomon says, if you don't have a wall around your heart that protects you from anger, you're an easy target from the enemy. You're just like that city that has no walls. Anybody can come in and have their way with you. Anger is the poison, James says, of an unbridled tongue. He said, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. The sad thing is that Christians think they have the right to be angry. Now, righteous anger is acceptable. Which is, which means when someone else is wrongly treated, the only time you saw Jesus angry was when he saw man mistreating his fellow man. He never got angry when he was mistreated or somebody did him wrong. It was only when he saw man mistreating fellow man. When Cain killed his brother, Abel asked God, uh, I'm sorry, when, when, yeah, when Cain killed his brother Abel, God asked Cain, why are you angry, Cain? The inference is, you shouldn't be angry. He said, Cain, why do you look so dejected? If you do the right thing, you'll be accepted, Cain. But if you refuse to do what's right, he said, watch out. He said, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it. That is, you must subdue the sin of anger and you must be the master over it. Same thing with Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 9. The Lord said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, if you do get angry, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger because anger gives a foothold to the devil. You have till sundown to get over your anger. Anger is disgraceful in anyone. Proverbs 27.4 says, wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. James says in verse, chapter 1, verse 19.20, you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now, if you followed those, that, that progression, if you would be slow to speak, just keep it closed. Oh, I'm sorry, be quick to hear. If you just open up your ears, listen with your ears, not your mouth, 
you'd be slow to get angry. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You know how ugly we get when we just allow the anger to have its way? The things that we say, the things that we do that we can't take back, and they can scar whoever it is you're you're spewing on forever. When you're angry, usually nice, nice things are not coming out of your mouth. And you know what? Nor are you a good witness. And it's unbecoming in everyone, but especially in leaders, and it's not allowed in Christians. Colossians 3.8 says, But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, and then he lists a bunch of other sins. Asa was angry with Hanani because he told him his fault. He told him the truth. Even good people need a whole lot of grace before they can say as David did in Psalm 141.5, let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it's soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. Now, Psalm 141.5, this is a good verse to mark down. Because in this verse, David was saying that being rebuked by a righteous person is a kindness. Now, nobody really likes criticism. But you know what? We can all benefit from it when it's given wisely and it's taken humbly. And Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth, but do it in love. We are to speak the truth, but we're to do it in love. In other words, when we're speaking it, you know, it's going to it's going to hurt. But in the spirit in which we give it. Can make it more acceptable or they'll totally reject it. Because the spirit of the messenger has a lot to do with how that message is received. We see a great example in Acts 18 when Apollos, who was an eloquent speaker, the scripture says, and it says he knew the scriptures well. And it says he'd been taught in the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus. And it says with an enthusiastic, a fervent spirit and with accuracy. So a lot of good things were said about Apollos. However, he knew only about John's baptism. In other words, that means that, 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 that Apollos was declaring an incomplete gospel. He didn't know about, the, about Calvary. He didn't know how, how the gospel was going to be fulfilled. His message got as far as John the Baptist and then it stopped. Apollos knew the promises, but he didn't know how those promises were going to be fulfilled. He didn't know anything about Calvary. He didn't know anything about the resurrection of Christ. He didn't know about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now he had zeal, but he lacked knowledge. He lacked spiritual knowledge. Now Priscilla and Aquila were there when he was preaching. Acts 18, 24 through 26 is when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue. It says they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. What was the results in Acts 18, 27 through 28? It says when Apollos got to Achaia, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. It said he refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. And it said using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Hey, we never get to a point in our Christian life when we cannot learn. And when we get to that point where we're not learning, that's when we begin to die, spiritually speaking. The word of God is so rich, so deep. We could, we could never learn it in a lifetime. 
Paul said at 30 years old in the ministry, he said, I have not yet uh, attained that for which I have been uh, uh, apprehended. I I haven't learned it all yet. And we we need to know that. Admit it. David suggested in Psalm 141.5 how to accept criticism. Make these little notes. Again, he said, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil and let my head not refuse it. So number one, he said he considered rebuking. He considered criticism a kindness. A kindness. Secondly, he said, let him rebuke me. In other words, keep quiet. Let him rebuke me. Keep quiet. Don't fight it. Don't fight back. And the third thing, don't refuse it. He said there at the end of verse uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 141, 5, he says, and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. So consider it to be a kindness. Keep quiet when you're being, getting that, that, that constructive criticism. Don't fight back and don't refuse it. And if you do these three things, it will help you to react to criticism, making it productive rather than destructive, no matter how it was originally intended. You see, the rebukes of the righteous should be received submissively, as Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 says. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so that you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. That's God's word. And we're to receive criticism with grateful affection. Proverbs 9 through 8, uh, 9, 8 says, correct the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they will learn even more. Hey, we are disciples, students, learners. We need to learn all that we can. Proverbs three eighteen says, the person who welcomes rebukes will be honored. Proverbs 5, 3 says, grow in understanding. Proverbs 5, 5 says, show good sense. Proverbs 5, 31 says, and you will abide among the wise. All fruit of receiving, again, productive feedback, productive uh, criticism. Secondly, Asa put the prophet Hanani in prison. He got angry at, 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 the, at God's word to him. And, the, and as a result, he put Hanani, God's prophet, in prison. Literally in stocks. Stocks were an instrument of torture. And then he went on to oppress those people who were on the prophet's side. They were probably the godly people who didn't approve of his partnership with the Syrian king. Now, not a lot of people will support a bad, a bad plan. No matter who it is. And especially if you live in a Christian land without somebody speaking out against it. Boy, we see that today. All kinds of people speaking, about, speaking out against the word of God today. But they're usually the people who often have to suffer abuse and oppression, just like Hanani's supporters did. But there's nothing more harmful for a country when the best people in it are persecuted by its leaders because they protest against their crooked plans, their crooked ways. When a policy can't be supported or carried out without putting people in prison who are against it, it's probably a bad policy. Now, here's the lessons in verses 7 through 10. The certainty that God sees everything that's done on earth. Nothing escapes the eyes of God. He sees everything. Secondly, the goodness of God in rebuking wrongdoers. Third, the foolishness of leaning upon the arm of flesh instead of on Almighty God. 
Fourth, we see the source of all calamity among men is sin. Fifth, the sign of an evil conscience is anger against an accuser and against the truth. Sixth, the usefulness of force as a way of solving any kind of problem. I'm sorry, the uselessness of force as a way of solving any kind of problem, which, you know, Asa did, you know, with Hanani, threw him in prison. Seventh, the courage required by those who would defend right and truth. And that's what we see of the people. They supported, they supported what Anani said. Verses 11 through 14. Note that, uh, note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So as Asa rested with his fathers, he died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared in a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. So Asa reigned for 41 years and then he died. He was probably over 60 years when he died. His cause of death, two things, disease and unbelief. First of all, disease. Two years after he died, uh, I'm sorry, two years before he died, Asa got a bad disease in his feet. Some believe it was possibly gout. But whatever it was, it was fatal. The second cause of death, unbelief. This is what the writer is suggesting here in verses 11 through 14. The writer is suggesting that if Asa would have asked the Lord about his foot problem, he might have been cured. But like he did in stopping Baish's attack, he depended more on Ben-Hadad than on Jehovah. So when Asa got sick, he turned to doctors instead of to Jehovah God. Now, let me make clear what I'm saying. To, to conclude from this, that Asa sinned and died because he went to the doctor, and that Christians shouldn't go to doctors when they're sick, is wrong. This is not what the text is saying, nor is it what I'm saying. Asa's mistake wasn't that he went to doctors for help, but that he put more trust in them than he did the Lord. Paul, you know, Paul took Luke, the physician with him on his missionary journeys. So it could be said that, you know, that Paul at least didn't think of it as being a contradiction with, you know, with religious principle to either give or accept medical advice. You see, what the doctors couldn't do for Asa Jehovah could have done if, if he would have been asked. So unbelief was the real cause of Asa's death, and maybe it's still the cause of many deaths today. But the scripture says, James, that you have not because you ask not. Without saying or suggesting that doctors aren't any better than those the gospel speaks about, because remember that the lady who had the hemorrhage for, for, for 12 years, she went to many doctors and, and, and it only made her worse. Again, without saying or suggesting that doctors aren't any better than those that the gospel speaks about, it's still true that physicians can't fix everything. They can't cure everything. And especially without God's blessings. Maybe in some cases where blessing is withheld, it's because the physician or his patient didn't ask the Lord. In closing, man's greatest illness today is the disease that's called sin. It's present at birth. Everyone has it. 
And it's 100% fatal. The whole human race will die of it if you don't seek God's help for it. There's only one physician that knows the cure and has the cure for sin. Jesus Christ, the great physician. He came up with the cure. I guess you could say the cure requires a blood transfusion. His blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Father, again, we thank you for this great lesson, God, in your word. Father, may we learn again from the scriptures, from the examples that you've left behind in your word, God. Lord, as Paul said, these things were written for our admonition and our advice Father, so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to learn the hard way. But we would learn through your word and, and through the examples of, of these that have been written for an example, God. Lord, help us to trust in you. Even when we don't understand, God. Even as Jesus said to Peter, what I am doing for you now You don't understand. But one day you will. Help us to trust in the infinite wisdom of God, the almighty power of God. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But God's word has spoken to your heart. And you recognize you need Christ. You need that blood transfusion to heal you from sin, to cleanse you from sin. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And this time is for you. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.